You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite the rest of us, if you are able, to join me in opening the Bible with us. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18. Uh, We will be in our kind of trek through the Gospel of Matthew, and I want you to join us there. Uh, For us, this is a time when we get to open the Bible and actually see that God begins to open us through that. And so if you don't have a Bible or a smartphone that'll get you there, there's a paperback Bible in the chair in front of you. Uh, We want to make that our gift to you if you don't have one, and even make that a gift to someone who might not have a Bible. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18, picking up where we've left off in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And I hope you'll find this to be fairly helpful that uh, we've tried to schedule it such that one of the passages of Scripture that I read just a moment today, or just a moment uh, earlier today, is the central text for our teaching this morning. And so we're going to read the first 14 verses of the 18th chapter of Matthew. Some of it you have already heard me read a moment ago, but it's about how the kingdom of heaven is visible in children. So up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's been introducing us to Jesus by all he is and has done, and, and even through what we find here in his fourth major discourse, what he teaches. And so the Sermon on the Mount is the first, most popular, most influential sermon or writing ever, ever recorded, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. But then following that, he had a discourse on what it means to, to be disciples of Jesus. And then, then he gave us a, a teaching on what it means to experience persecution and hardship in the world. And, and then what we find here is a teaching on what it means to be a part of the community of faith. That is, the second time we've seen this word, we'll see next week, is the word church. And so what we find here in this particular section is a, is a beginning of what it looks like to be a part of the community of faith. That is, to be a part of the household, or, or that is, to be a member of the kingdom of God that Jesus has been teaching about. And the groundwork, the, the introduction to the community of faith as I read just a moment ago, is a child. And the greatness in God's kingdom is not like the kingdom of the world that you might find, but it's like a child. And so he gives us in this chapter a picture of corporate life, what it means to follow Jesus together, to be joined together by our common grace of what Christ has done and then the common grace of now the mission and purpose he's given us to be in the world. And there's a special attention given to the strains that these Christians, these first disciples, would experience. And so I want to read to you those 14 verses of Matthew chapter 18. We'll kind of walk through, I hope, some principles and observations that we find there. And I hope that even in light of a day like Mother's Day, you'd be encouraged by what we find. So, beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. 
For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of that one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. And so it is, not the will of my Father who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. As we've been beginning each of our, these passages we've been looking through in the Gospel of Matthew with a question, you'll see why. Many of these passages begin with a question, and this passage is no different. The disciples come to Jesus and begin a question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And to illustrate the point, I want to begin with a question while it's fresh on your mind. For just a moment, go back with me in time. Remember when these adorable children were in front of us? Can you picture them in your mind? I want to ask a question. It's going to seem profane at first, but hang with me. Which one of these children that we had in front of us just a moment ago was the greatest? <laughs> Be honest with yourself. Which one of these children that we had, these little children just a moment ago in front of us, which one is the greatest? Now the people closest in the front, these family, they knew exactly how to answer that question. They, um, thank you for not raising your hand, I appreciate that. It was rhetorical. But which one of those children that you saw just a moment ago in your mind is the greatest? And why do you think that? Because when you start to think that way, when you start to think in those terms, you realize an axiom that's laid before us as an invitation to experience grace today. And that's this, that all the defining features of a little child are received and not achieved. All of the defining features of the children you just met or any little child that is meant to be an analogy here that Jesus is using to see eyes into the spiritual kingdom. All of their features are received and not achieved. Right, after all, if, if that weren't the case, if you were to answer that, like which one of these children were the best, even then like your achievement ladder would be weird to climb, right? You'd be like, well, this one drooled better than that one? As, right, as though that's an achievement. Do you get the idea? Because after all, what it means to be a little child, as we see here, is a picture of humility can be seen through this lens that all of the greatness of a little child is received. It's not achieved. And what we celebrated just a moment ago with these children is what we have received. It is not at all what these children have 
achieved. Now, that's hard for some of these parents to hear already. They're like, are you sure? Because after all, they can prove the truth of this axiom because that's how you kind of how to brag on yourself is you brag on your children, right? It's like, this is probably the smartest baby that's ever lived. This might be the, and that's a weird, weird kind of way to say how smart you think you are or wonderful you think your family is. And that's great. You should just say that. But there's kind of a window, a lens through, through that child to see something. And that is what it is that they've received. Maybe you would think of it as what they have inherited. And so if we're going to think about the the building blocks, the foundational elements of what the church is, the community of faith in Jesus, here are the components you'll see in this chapter. The first one is humility, pictured with childlikeness. The second is holiness. That is how this group of people relates to sin, sin in others and sin in themselves. And then what you'll see at the the end of our time today, as well as in the next two weeks, the features of of this community of believers is finding and forgiving. So humility and holiness, finding and forgiving. We'll spend as much time as we can today on those first three. Humility, holiness, and finding. And you see the picture of humility and the picture of a child. The picture of holiness, that is, the relationship of this people to sin. That is, relationship, the relationship of these people to things that would rebel against God. So, for example, if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself a believer in Jesus, or maybe you just don't know, I'm really grateful you're here uh, because we'll use that word sin, and the reason we use that word sin is because Jesus did, but that word might just seem highly religious or weird, but I I don't want it to to scare you. It's just simply a word that is a reference to how something is, is connected to the Lord, that is, we believe who our God and creator, right? Like a, if, you, if, you, if you transgress in a, in a sport, it's called a foul or a penalty, right? If you transgress, right, in, in the world before a government, it's called a crime. If you transgress or rebel against our creator, Jesus calls that sin. And so it's simply thinking about our relationship to the creator. And then lastly, a foundational element of the church, the Christian community is finding, finding, seeking out the lost. So, let's begin with this idea of humility and holiness. Humility and holiness are directly connected. So, we'll walk through this as we, the first is the picture of humility in the child. Who's the greatest, they say? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You can read Mark chapter 9. Uh, Mark chapter 9 tells us this kind of a parallel passage. And when the gospel of Mark tells us it's a little bit rougher, it's because the disciples are not just wondering out of curiosity. They're wondering out of comparison. I'll get back to that in just a moment, but they're asking, which one of us is the greatest? That's the subtext here. Jesus, which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom? And he, by placing a, a child before them, proves a point to us that the greatest is the one who stoops the lowest. The greatest is the least, he will say in the rest of that chapter in the Gospel of Mark. That picture of humility is in verse 4. Who then, whoever humbles himself like this child. So, I get to commend you. Especially if you're young in the room, I want you to talk about children this week and think about all the defining features of a child. I'll give you some, maybe some clarifying uh, direction here, but like, we're meant to look through children and see all sorts of features that I believe are windows into God's grace. And in this case, it's the smallness, the helplessness of children that serves as a window into, the, into the God's grace and his kingdom. How upside down and countercultural it really is. Uh, that, that doesn't mean that, you know, all of the other features of a child, like narcissism or selfishness, right? That's probably not helpful. Um, that's a window into the kingdom, but in another way. 
right, uh, into the, ma- uh, to the mercy and grace that God shows us in our selfishness. It's not the pur- purpose of this particular passage. It's the smallness or helplessness of the child, the humility, the feebleness, and even the neediness of children that helps us see into this. And he says that ultimately, you must turn, that is, be changed, quite literally, Now, I read just a moment ago this idea, John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, in order to enter, you won't even see the kingdom unless you are born again. A miraculous feature of faith is that we become something new. When you see Jesus for who he really is, you are not the same. It changes you. You can't go back. And that's why Nicodemus is like, how is it possible? You can't go back into a mother's womb. And yet here we have this same picture. Unless you become like them. And you're meant to stop for a moment and go like, how is that? I... How can I do this? And once you begin to ask that kind of question, you get a lens, a window into the kind of grace that God gives us in Christ. He says, unless you become like this child, you won't understand the kingdom. You won't enter. You won't see it for what it is. And you have to shrink yourself, stoop down like a child in order to be the greatest. Now, a couple of things I have to kind of qualify before we talk about this. Anytime we talk about parenthood, children, Uh, There are always going to be societal norms or societal trends and expectations that can either help or hurt us. In the time in which Jesus is speaking, speaking of children would have been speaking as the lowest, as as the people who don't have any say-so in their life, right? Like uh, the people who have no control, uh, they have no advocacy or agency in their own life. They don't have autonomy. that's, That's how society would have seen these children. When it comes to societies, they work in cycles or sometimes in pendulums. And we just so happened, I would say the, the, hard, the hard thing we would need to think through that, would, that if we don't address would hinder us from hearing the truth of the good news of Jesus here is that we live in a culture on the, if we're going to think about like the pendulum swinging of kind of thinking very little of children and not thinking very highly of them at all, we're on the other side of the, of the spectrum. This pendulum is swung to where we deify children. Now you've heard me talk about this, I think, at Christmas Christmas is not a Christ-centered holiday. It is a child-centered holiday. Almost everything we do is to what? Like capture this magic. It's to like capture this kind of perceived innocence and perfection in children, which again is weird because if you go hang out with children and Kids Connection now, you will see anything but perfection, right? They, sh- they, sh- they show in such unadulterated fashion our deepest desires for ourselves, Me, 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 right? And we live in a particular culture, and the best phrase I can give you is in which the the axiom or norm when it comes to parenting would be what we call the helicopter parent. That we've swung so far to think that, that ultimately, like, children are a means of satisfaction, they're a means of joy, they're a means of identity, they're a means of purpose in a parent's life. And so the idea of a helicopter parent is that I say it this way, it's like, it's when you stop parenting in a way that's about the child and you start parenting in a way that's about the parent. In my own family, it's like, when I'm parenting and disciplining my child in a way that's about them, I'm I'm explaining, hey, this is what we're learning here, this is what's dangerous here, or this is what I want you to learn, this is what's good for you, right, this is the privilege or responsibility, right, you get the idea, and it's about them. But then there's this other type of parenting that I'm sure you know what it looks like. When I start disciplining my child, not in a way that it's about them, but it's about me. And ultimately what is communicated is not, I love you and I care about what's best for you. What is communicated is, you annoy me, right? This bothers me. Or worse, 
and you know what this feels like, you're being a bad reflection on me. Now, I saw this the most in athletics, especially I had a brief stint in coaching. I saw this, got the heck out of that. <laughs> and you can hear the parent in the, right, in the youth sports industrial complex yelling out, you're a bad reflection on me. So as a coach, I would tell parents, and maybe this is just a side note for you, I would say, you're only allowed to yell one thing during the game. If you want to come coach, great, come to practice. Let's help learn drills. During the game, you're only allowed to say a few things. Good job, good try, way to go, get them next time, right? You are not allowed to coach. If you want to do that, come, you can have the role. I'll give you the whistle. Right? You get the idea? Because all that child hears in that public moment is my father is ashamed of me or my, or my mother is ashamed of me. And you get a window into what kind of where we are, I think. That is the tendency for many of us as parents this morning is not to neglect in this case, it's to live through children. Now, why did I go off on that tangent? Because anytime we're talking about the fatherhood of God here and our nature as children, we want to reflect theologically correctly who God is. And here's the cool part. This is the good news. God loves us because of him, not us. We bring no benefit to the equation. We are nothing but a hindrance and a liability to God our Father and what is true about him. He loves us anyway. He doesn't get anything from us. He doesn't benefit from us. He only gives, and that is a window into the good news of God's love for us. He's not using us to get something from us. And so when, he, when we get this picture of parenthood and childhood, just be careful. There, there are things that are going to hinder us and help us and how we see the fatherhood of God and the loving nature of God and that we are now his children cared for and adopted by him. And we just happen to be on this side of the spectrum, I think. Uh, the last example I'll give you is the word adulting. Have you heard, anyone heard the word adulting lately? Adulting was invented by helicopter parents. I want you to know that, okay? If you're helicopter parents, you did this, right? Rather than seeing acting like an adult as something you just did, it's an accomplishment you have to celebrate and tweet about, right? You get the idea? I could go on. You probably have many in yourself. But like, think about it. It's just the parent living their anxiety and fear onto the child rather than love and grace. Now, you and I all have our own issues to work through on that, but just realize all of those are going to hinder us from seeing the love of God, who thankfully, parents, doesn't love our children like we do. He's a better father than we are. And he loves because he is love. He sacrifices and gives of himself, not for his benefit, but for ours. And so let that kind of help that the Father offers us give you a window into the humility Jesus is commending to us. That the way we understand the kingdom is through the helplessness, the neediness of a child. The helplessness of a child. That's the attribute we're meant to see here. We're meant to see our smallness and understand that in God's kingdom, the greatest ones are the ones who don't think they're great. The greatest are the ones who know that they are not. They begin to revel not in their own personal features, but they revel in the features of their parents. And they receive as a gift more than they are attempting to achieve. A child needs to receive security and comfort. I think nature is a powerful gospel narrative here, right? Us mammals are one of the only creatures that depend upon social connection for survival. 
apart from relational connection, right, right in, this, in this sense, relational connection is not a privilege or just a, a cool thing. It is a mode of survival for us. Because think about it, when a child is born, its only hope is that someone, right, someone would look at its helplessness and respond. Do you get it? Do you see how even nature testifies something to the goodness of God? That the helplessness of a child is not a hindrance for us, per se. Instead, it's a picture of God's love for us, who, seeing our deep need and helplessness, moved to our aid in Christ. This is especially important for us. This means that Christian maturity and childlike faith are not opposed to one another. They're interdependent. In fact, if you have conceived of maturity as anything other than utter dependence upon the gifts we receive from God, then I promise you, you are, you are in the collection of religious teachers that, he, that Jesus has already fought with. They're called Pharisees who believed that their righteousness was in and of themselves. And so to a bunch of Midwesterners, right, just think about it. Like this, I want you to hear this as offensively as possible. I mean, I mean this. Not from me, but from Jesus. Like, I want you to hear this as offensively as possible. For a bunch of people, like, the biggest insult I could tell any of you is that you're lazy. Right? Like, that could be, like, if I brought someone up, hey, man, this guy's really lazy. I, 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 could, I could probably say a million things about them, that, about you, that wouldn't offend you. But if I said you were lazy, like, you contribute nothing, that would probably destroy you. And your whole family would roll over in their grave. Like, no, not that. Oh, Lord, not lazy. Right? And I just want you to see that, thank God, how productive, how productive you are. That's really great. We're all benefiting from that. And I want you to know that tendency in you will blind you from receiving the gift of God's grace. That the most important feature about the child we saw a moment ago is the most important feature about you. Not what you achieve, but what you receive. And what will, I think, for many of you start as an offense. You're telling me I have nothing, I can't bring anything? No, you can't. And what will begin as an offense will become a blanket. It will warm your soul. You're like, what? Because think about it. Maybe, maybe for you in this room, maybe this, this last week you wrecked it. Maybe this last week you did everything you swore you wouldn't do. Maybe this last week was the biggest disappointment of your life. Maybe this last week or month or year has been marked by incredible failure. I have a blanket for you. The greatest, most powerful thing about you is not what you achieve or have not achieved. It's about what you receive. And God offers himself freely in Christ. And the greatest in the kingdom is not the one who boasts. The greatest in the kingdom is sees their need and helplessness like a child. And this frees you. When you realize that the greatest thing about you is not your achievement, but rather what you receive graciously from God, it frees you. After all, one of the greatest, one of the greatest indicators that you are not receiving this gracious gift is your comparison to others. And that's the most beautiful picture I think we saw a moment ago with some of these children. None of them cared about their social status. Not yet, until you, t until you teach them to, right? They're going to learn that from us. But what, they don't care. They don't know what's success. All they know is, wham, I'm hungry, wham, right, wham, I need to fill in the blank, right? That's all, that's it. And, and so just think of what a beautiful picture this is. When you know that's true and you know who you really are is what you've received freely in Christ, then you can stop fighting. 
Because after all, if your identity is built in achievement, then it's always up for grabs, isn't it? If your identity is built, if your value is built on your achievement, then every day is a threat, right? right? Even right now, you're like, oh my goodness, what could people think of you, right? You can probably feel it. But when your greatest treasure is a gift that you neither paid for nor could afford and you can't ruin, then you're freed. Here's for some of you how you know you're freed to receive criticism. Some of you can't handle criticism. And it's because you think your greatest, your greatest, your greatest thing about you is your achievement. And when you know the greatest thing about you is a gift God freely gives, you can lay it down. You can lay down the weapons. You can stop competing. But here's the thing. Many of us will say, well, I don't really need to be like a helpless child. I'm not completely helpless. Surely that's not what you're saying, right? There's surely something I bring to the table. And Jesus says, no, you won't enter the kingdom that way. The only ones who will enter the kingdom are the ones who lower themselves to realize the gift that we receive. I've said this before, but the greatest gifts always start with kind of an insult. I'll give you a little picture. It's like if today I offered you a mint. I was like, here's a peppermint. <laughs> right? And you'd be like, thank you. But, but think about that just for a moment, right? You're like, what are you saying? Any gift you receive is an acknowledgement that you were missing out before, right? Otherwise, it's not really a gift. Now multiply that, times the, multiply that times the greatness of God and realize that like it begins as, a, as an offense. Are you saying I need this? And God says yes, but don't worry, I've got everything you need. Look, the value of a child is not in their accomplishments, but in their relationships and their family. The value of a child is ultimately in what their family owns. And so that doesn't mean we're meant to be child-centric, but it, meant, it means, and, and, and be immature, but instead we see that maturity it actually comes from releasing and relinquishing the need to assert ourselves, to prove ourselves, and to simply receive what the Father has given. So what does greatness look like? I'll give you a couple of things. Greatness starts to look like the relationship these people have with sin. Beginning in verse 5, all the way through verse 11. First, it gives us a picture of what how, how this greatness and childlikeness helps us to relate to others, the sin we find in others, or even worse here, the sin we might cause in others. I'll, say, I'll, remove, I'll remove the word might. The sin we will certainly cause in others. And this shouldn't be new to us. Gospel, uh, or this is throughout the Gospels, but even the Apostle Paul tells, uh, tells the Roman church that we are to live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but instead associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. The idea is that once you know that your only hope is in your helplessness as a child, you have this deep empathy for those who are also helpless. But if you think, if you think you have achieved what's great about you, then what you're doing right now is simply looking down on others, right? Why don't they just do that? Why don't they just stop being that way, right? And yet that shows you haven't received the gift. When we have received the gift, we realize, oh, the people who are lowly is me. The helpless people are not them. It's us. And we have this deep compassion for people in need because we know that's who we are. It's as if to say that there are only two types of people, right? There's helpless people, and there's people that don't know they're helpless yet. And it just so happens, God is in his grace, introduced us to the fact that we are helpless, not to crush us or to shame us, but to help. 
Paul tells the Philippians that this ultimately reflects the goodness of Christ. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, there's that word again, count others more significant than yourselves. So Jesus says that once you know how great God is, how helpful he's been to us as we're helpless, then you're freed to help others. And then you begin to see your own sin, and you see sin, things that are breaking the world as hindrances, to helpless children in need of God's grace. They're not simply challenges that you and I are meant to encourage people to take on themselves. And so I want to be very clear, the relationship to sin is seen through this lens we find in this text, that Jesus is vengefully, wrathfully on the side of the helpless. I know for many of you, this might be a side of Jesus that makes you feel very uncomfortable. It's meant to do that. It's meant to be a threat. He says, look, if you cause one of these who believe in me, so now he's, he's gone through not just children, right? This isn't just about children, but it's those who now are helpless and hopeless. If you start to see these little ones is the word he starts to use. And if you begin to hinder them in some way, we see in these two next sections, then you would be better off dead. But Jesus is a poetic teacher. He doesn't just say that, right? He could have just said that. Hey, you'd be better off dead. Thanks, Jesus. He's like, no, 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 no. Let me tell you the type of death that you would, you would wish you had, right? And then it gets gruesome. Here's the kind of death you wish you had. You would wish that you had been drowned. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen that, which would you rather? There's always that, which would you rather drown or be burned? The answer is no, either way, right? But at least one of the top two here is here. And he says, you will wish that you had been drowning, when you see what I have in store for those who hinder and harm those whom I love. Now, this might scare you for a minute, the idea that Jesus would be vengeful or wrathful. I know it feels uncomfortable, but I just want you to, sh- I want you to see venge- vengeance and wrath and justice are actually a part of love. In fact, if, 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 if I love you, but I don't care that something bad happens to you, then I don't really love you. Right? If I profess love for, say, someone in my family, but if someone harms them and I go, oh, well, right, that's not love. Love demands wrath. Love fuels wrath. Wrath is simply proportional to love. You are only as angry as you love that thing that it's been threatened or harmed. And so see through the lens here of this wrath, Jesus' love for the helpless that he has come to save. He doesn't just say, hey, I'm going to give you right, a leg up do your best. He says, I'm going to do everything you can't do for yourself, and oh, by the way, I will protect you to the death. There's this understanding not only of the depth and awfulness of sin in others, but we get a recap from Matthew chapter 5 and the depth and awfulness of sin in ourselves. Did you hear it? Woe to now the world, kind of recaps there. It's necessary that sin will come, but woe to the one who brings that kind of temptation, and then he turns to the people a part of this community. If you yourself, not only seeing the sin in others, but you see the sin in yourself, then you would immediately want to go to great lengths to chop it off. You would want to get rid of it. And it's better off that you had no feet or hands and see God's kingdom than to have them and be thrown into hell. Let me just give you a brief translation. It would be better that you entered this life without social media than to miss out on God's kingdom. It would be better for you to live in this life without the accolade and approval of others than to miss out on God's kingdom. 
It would be better for you to miss out on the approval and acceptance of your peers than it would be. To, do you hear the, do you get the idea? These things that are good things, right? That, like, he's not saying like, like eyes are bad, right? Hands are bad, feet are bad, absolutely not. They become like pictures of God's kingdom later in, in the New Testament. But even, even if a good thing begins to replace what God alone gives, namely holiness and righteousness, then you're better off without it. So, the last bit we see is Jesus, not only for the helpless, but also for the lost. Jesus is relentlessly, radically pursuing the lost. Look at this last section. He says that, don't despise, now here's that theme that connects them, the little ones. Don't despise these. Don't look down on them, right? That's, again, you get that picture. Like, if, if you think that your greatness is about your achievement, then that's what, that's the next natural response, is you'll despise You'll look down and you'll be like, oh, why can't you just stop being the way you are? And not realizing you're only the way you are because of God's gifts. Don't despise these little ones. In fact, the angels are watching over them. But look at this. Imagine a shepherd who leaves the 99 to go and to reclaim the lost. So look at what we get as the building blocks of the Christian community. One, the sense that we are helpless and hopeless apart from Christ. And we receive as a gift what he freely gives. Two, we're now pursuing a holiness. That is, we, we don't want the thing that has hindered the helpless to hinder them. And we don't want these things to hinder us as well. Maybe the way to summarize is that the greatest in the kingdom are the repenters. The people who see sin for what it is and turn from it as quickly as possible. And then the third building block is this idea of pursuing the lost. Because just like you and I in Christ were hopeless and helpless and have received hope and help in Christ, so also were we lost and without a way. But Christ the Good Shepherd has come. He has come and picked us up to carry us back to where we always belonged. And so too also do we. I'm going to speak just briefly, uh, kind of a family talk here for just a moment, and then I'll wrap up. Um, so give me just this privilege for just a few minutes. Uh, as a church, uh, God has blessed us with growth, and uh, you can see that because you probably, not probably, you certainly had a hard time parking this morning. I'm sorry, uh, <laughs> and yet I'm grateful that you're here. I hope, I hope that the, the, you know, the, the trekking you did across the rain uh, in the parking lot got you to this place where you heard good news of how much God loves you and cares for you. I hope, I hope. Um, but think of it this way. Our, we're in a, in a turning point in the life of our church where we're going to have to multiply opportunities for more people to hear about Jesus. This room just won't hold them all. They, it will for a while. So in the next year, what will, what will probably happen, we're going to strategically multiply this worship service into two services that will happen on a Sunday morning. We're also strategically going to ask for money to build a parking lot to make some of that more possible. You may not know this, but over 30 cars are parked across the street at Avera, uh, where they have graciously allowed us to shuttle volunteers uh, early in Sunday morning. Uh, and so thank, thank God for them. Uh, that being said, uh, everything I just said that might happen this year, if Avera doesn't like us anymore, we're doing it next week because we won't have a place to park. Uh, and we love our neighbors, and we don't want to park on their driveways and parking lots and, and their grass. Please, right? This means that this obsession with the helpless and the lost is an invitation for you and I to experience. And here's all I want to say. As we begin to, this is going to be a big cultural shift for our church. Um, and again, if you're not a part of this church, just thank you for listening in. I hope you hear, I hope you hear the heart of Christ to the lost here as best as we can communicate it. Um, but here's just a kind of warning. 
If multiplying services is just about making more convenience for a bunch of consumers, then I don't recommend you give your life to it. I don't recommend you sacrifice much for it. But if investing in, let's say, multiplying services, and eventually, I hope in the next 10 years, to plant churches, which will certainly cost sacrifice, if ultimately is it about welcoming the helpless and the lost the way that Christ has welcomed us, then let's go. Let's do it. Why wouldn't we? Because after all, the reason we would think to do that is what we started with, that the greatest one is the one who stoops the lowest. Right? In some small way, the greatest of you is the one who walked the furthest, right? But that's not big enough. That's not enough to give your life for. This is what's worth giving your life for. Change the tense of that verb. The greatest is the one who did, who has stooped the lowest. The shepherd, did you hear that? The radically generous shepherd who says, forget the, and again, you might, that's rude. That's, why, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't you care about my comfort? Because Jesus doesn't. He cares about seeking and saving the lost. And so friend, when you behold the shepherd, the one who has stooped the lowest, who has crossed eternity, who has given up his comfortable seat at the right hand of the Father in order to redeem the helpless, the hopeless, and the lost, when you see it, it changes you. You can't look away. It makes something new out of your life. And when you were a helpless, hopeless child, you are now welcomed and a part of this great mission of welcoming others. So friend, behold Jesus. Behold the one who has stooped. After all, who became more helpless and hopeless than Jesus, naked and betrayed on the cross? Who became more lost and forsaken than Jesus, hanging helpless on the cross? And when you see the reason why, to welcome the helpless and the hopeless and the lost. When you behold him for what he is, it changes everything. And you, you can, as I invite you, to receive with childlike dependence. Throw your temper tantrum, friend. Throw it to God. And he will not despise you like you and I might. He welcomes you. Wander. Wander as much as you might. And know that the good shepherd will find you you can't outrun him. So friend, begin to receive this good news of the one who has come to stoop the lowest, to redeem the hopeless, and to rescue the lost. Let's celebrate him as we pray together and sing together. Let's pray with one another in Jesus' name. God, thank you. We come to you in the name of Jesus because it's only through the name of Jesus that we receive all the gifts that you mean to give us. I pray that even in this room, as, we've, as we contemplate a mystery that you your love is most powerfully and visibly displayed, not in those who achieve, but those who receive. Might today be the first day for some of us to receive this good gift of your grace. Maybe for some of us, it's a call to not minimize our sin, but instead to think about how the price that has been paid, the very blood of the Son of God, is too great for us to flirt with it, but instead invite, let us invite the heart of God to cut it out. And maybe if we're just simply despising, looking down on people we think are hopeless and helpless to the extent that we've forgotten how hopeless and helpless we are, remind us, convict us with the power of your Holy Spirit. Renew us with this gospel grace 
that you welcome the lost. For the parents committing to model the, the fatherhood of God here, remind the parents in this room that you comfort the feeble, that their greatest, their greatest asset is what they also have received, the grace that you've given them. Let them be lead repenters. Let them be the ones that see sin for what it is and look to Jesus for what he is, the true remedy, the great redemption. Lord, as this text speaks to us, help us to be comforted as children. Help us to, to in great faith, cry out. Relinquish and repent of our desire to be anything less than children comforted and cuddled by our Father. Help us to relinquish anything that would, that would cause us to want to achieve or compare. Instead, that we would lay down our interests to bless others, to lead others to you, to welcome the lost, and help us to begin to, like the Good Shepherd, join him in his pursuit to welcome those who have not heard the hope of the Redeemer. It's in that hope that we get access to the Father like little children. So let us now respond in faith as we sing together. Let us do this as a, a receiving of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.